This evening we're going to be considering the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. And uh, we can turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. And see the words of the Lord Jesus Christ here. Verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remissions, uh, remission of sins. When you consider the old Jewish Passover feast, it was a yearly remembrance of when God delivered the ancient Israelites out of slavery in Egypt about 1,500 years before the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world. It's a remembrance of when God redeemed the Israelites with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. That deliverance pointed ahead in time to when the incarnate Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, with outstretched arms nailed to a wooden cross, would redeem his people from their sins and he would do so with his own precious blood. As such, Jesus is the Christian's Passover. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. Fittingly, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper at the Passover meal that he shared with his apostles on the night of his arrest. Therefore, the Passover foreshadowed the cross and the Passover feast, which was a remembrance of the Passover, foreshadowed the Lord's Supper or communion service or Eucharist during which the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ is remembered. Here in this church, it's remembered every Sunday morning. As the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. You've heard that from me week after week after week. As to what Jesus said to his apostles when he instituted the Lord's Supper, we've just seen that in Matthew chapter 26. Let's have a look at it again. Matthew 26, verse 26. This is the night of Jesus' arrest when he was having the Passover meal with his disciples and he instituted the, the Lord's Supper. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. 
Those words have, cons- have caused considerable confusion and division in the church throughout the ages of church history with differing interpretations as to what Jesus meant when he said, this is my body and this is my blood. Only the re- One of the reasons that I brought to you this um, subject matter this evening is because only recently, a couple of weeks ago, I was having this discussion with someone who insisted to me that we ought to take Jesus at his word there and uh, what he said there, we have no right to change it in any way and there was this insistence that the bread is the body of Jesus because that's what Jesus says. And the cup is his blood, that's what he says. And the person even said to me, how do you read Genesis chapter 1? Well, it's an account of creation. Exactly. So why would you read Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 to 28, any differently? Read it as it is. Of course, Genesis chapter 1 is a historical account. This is different. Let's consider various views of, or various interpretations of what Jesus meant when he said what he said in these verses. According to Roman Catholicism, at the Mass, the bread or the wafer, literally becomes the body of Jesus. And the wine literally becomes his blood. When the priest offers a prayer of consecration, the teaching is called transubstantiation. Rome teaches that even though the wafer and the wine continue to look the same, they are in fact the body and the blood of Jesus. The unchanged appearance is called the accidents, and what they are, what they actually are, according to Rome, is called the substance. In summary, the accidents of the wafer and the wine do not change, but the substance becomes the body and the blood of Jesus. However, if something looks like a duck, swims like a duck, and quacks like a duck, then you would probably conclude that it's a duck, despite the claims of Rome. Rome claims that the sacrifice that took place at Calvary is perpetuated at the Mass, and Catholics would strenuously deny that they are in effect sacrificing Jesus over and over again, even though they are eating what they believe to be the body of Christ and drinking what they believe to be his blood every time they go to Mass. The doctrine of transubstantiation with the presence and the accidents does not come from the Bible, but from an outside source from the philosopher Aristotle. 
needless to say that Roman Catholicism strongly rejects sola scriptura or scripture alone. It would have to, in order to justify this doctrine and many other false doctrines such as purgatory, about which Rome says that it is a purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven which is experienced by those who die in God's grace and friendship but still imperfectly purified. You see, that doesn't come from the Bible. That comes from their tradition. Whereas the doctrine of purgatory flies in the face of what the Bible teaches. For example, that Jesus washed us from our sins in his own blood. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all our sins. Rome makes no secret about its reliance on non-scriptural sources. For example, it is written in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and I quote the Catechism here, the Church, to whom the transmission and interpretation of Revelation is entrusted, does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honoured with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. They make no secret of it. It's scripture and tradition. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? This is what the, um, the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes were guilty of. And when you think about it, so many um, false religions, cults, they have alongside the Bible their own book um, to which they give, well, not just equal weight, but more weight. For example, the Mormons and the Book of Mormon, the Jehovah's Witnesses with their their publications, Awake and um, Watchtower magazine, and so on. So it's so much for the Roman Catholics. There are others, of course. The Lutherans also believe in the real presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the bread and the wine. But they do not believe that those elements actually become the body and blood of Jesus. They simply say that the body of Jesus is present in the bread and... His blood is present in the wine. So they don't go as far as to say the bread is the body of Jesus, the wine is his blood. They simply say, well, his body is present in the bread and his blood is present in the wine. What about Baptists? What do we say? Do we know what we believe about this? Because, as I say, I was tackled about this just a couple of weeks ago. It's all very well saying, well, it's ridiculous to to say that um, the bread is, uh, it can't be the body of Jesus, it doesn't make sense, and the wine can't be his 
blood, it doesn't make sense. And besides which, you know, you've got certain churches, they use Ribena for the wine. Are you saying that the Ribena is the blood of Jesus? You, you can't apply reason there because Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body. He said, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. What do we say as Baptists? The Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689. Let me tell you what's written in there. The supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the same night wherein he was betrayed to be observed in his churches unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance and showing to all the world the sacrifice of himself in his death, confirmation of the faith of believers in all the benefits thereof, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe to him, and to be a bond and a pledge of their communion with him and with each other. So there's that communion with Jesus and with each other. In this ordinance, Christ is not offered up to his Father, nor any real sacrifice made at all for the remission of sin, of the living or dead, but only a memorial of that one offering up of himself, by himself, upon a cross, once for all, and a spiritual oblation of all possible praise unto God for the same, so that the popish sacrifice of the Mass, as they call it, is most abominable, injurious to Christ's own sacrifice, the alone propitiation for all the sins of the elect. The outward elements in this ordinance duly set apart to the use ordained by Christ, have such relation to him crucified as they truly, although in terms used figuratively, they are sometimes called by the names of the thing they represent. In other words, the body and blood of Christ. Albeit in substance and nature, they still remain truly and only bread and wine as they were before. That doctrine which maintains a change of the substance of bread and wine into the substance of Christ's body and blood, commonly called transubstantiation by consecration of a priest or by any other way, is repugnant, not to scripture alone, but even to common sense and reason, overthrows the nature of the ordinance and has been and is the cause of manifold superstitions, yea, of gross idolatries. So the Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689, is very clear there. I know there's a lot in there, and you'd probably have to read it through yourself a few times at your own pace to make sense of it, but I think you, I would hope you got the gist of it there. But, is it biblical? Because we don't want to be doing what the others do. We don't want to be saying, well, this is what the Baptist Confession says, so that's it. We don't want to rely 
on the scriptures and outside sources, we must always see what saith the scriptures. We need to be like the psalmist who said, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We need to be like the Bereans who searched the scriptures to see if the things that the apostle said were so. So, let us see if the Bible confirms what is stated in the Baptist Confession, that there is no change in the substance of the elements, that they remain truly bread and wine. We kind of, I guess you're the same as me, you... you, you you, you, you would assume that that is the case, but you need to be able to show these things from the Bible. We need to check out the Lutheran claim as well, that even though the bread and wine do not become the body and blood of Jesus, his body is nevertheless present in the bread and his blood in the wine. The Lutherans, they are... Uh, a legitimate Christian denomination. Okay? But there is a difference here when it comes to the Lord's Supper, what they believe and what I've just read from the Baptist Confession. What I want to do now for the rest of the time is go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. What saith the Scriptures? 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to read the first four verses. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. This is a reference to the Red Sea when the Israelites were delivered out of slavery in Egypt. And were all baptised unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual food and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. That rock was Christ. After God had delivered the ancient Israelites out of Egypt, they spent 40 long years in the wilderness before entering the Promised Land. During their wilderness wanderings, the Lord graciously quenched their thirst with water that flowed from a rock. didn't even trickle from the rock. It flowed from the rock. God provided for their, 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 their needs and uh, he quenched their thirst. Also, various Old Testament verses describe God as the rock. For example, in Psalm 95 verse 1, it is written, O come, let us sing unto the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, made the connection between the rock that satisfied the bodily thirst of the Israelites and the Son of God who satisfies the spiritual thirst. You see it there in verse 4. And did all drink the same spiritual rock for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. 
The Lord Jesus Christ himself spoke of the living water that he gives to thirsty souls when he was speaking to a Samaritan woman beside a well. In John chapter 4 verse 14, Jesus said to the woman, Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. He wasn't speaking about H2O that comes from the tap. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Coming back to the Israelites of old, God was with them. Indeed, the Son of God was with them and he graciously gave them water from a rock and that rock depicted the spiritual water that he gives to repentant sinners. As well as drinking water from the rock, the Jews made for themselves a golden calf and they idolised it. Look down at verse 7 there. Neither be ye idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's a reference to the golden calf that they made for themselves when Moses was up the mountain receiving the commandments from God. So what we have there behind the rock was Jesus. We see that in verse 4. But also behind the golden calf and in fact behind all idols there are demons. Consequently the Israelites incurred the wrath and the judgment of God. God gave them all these things, shoes that never wore out. Uh, He gave them bread from heaven and as we see here the rock that supplied them water and so on and so on but even so they worshipped idols and they incurred the wrath of God what happened with the Israelites of old is a warning to us As it's written in verses 6 and 11 in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, those things that happened are recorded for our admonition to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as the Jews of old did. Then when you get to verse 16, look at verse 16 now. We'll take it from verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless... Is it not the communion or the fellowship of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold Israel after the flesh, are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar what say I then that the idol is anything or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything the answer to that would be no Um, the idols they are not anything they're made of wood they're made of stone they're made of gold they're made of silver and that's it or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is that anything no it's just food The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's just food that God has made and provided for us. What say I then? 
that the idol is anything? No. Or that which is offered on, is, I'm on verse 19 here, that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So in these verses, the apostle considers the bread and the cup. In Earlier on, he was looking at the rock there, that rock which was Christ, not literally Christ, in verse 4. And he also looked at the golden calf in um, verse 7, and they incurred the wrath of God. And now he brings it, uh, that was 1500 years earlier, then he brings it to the present time in verse 16 onwards, and he considers the bread and the cup, which, like the rock, are not Christ, but they do point to him and to his spiritual blessings. As for the idols in verse 20, as has already been pointed out, behind those worthless idols, there are demons. I saw enough of that during my five years in India. People bowing down to idols and you could smell the evil. There was something very sinister about the whole thing. And it wasn't those carved images that they were bowing down to. It was the demons behind all those things. And we can be guilty of the same, by the way, because we in the West, uh, we may have our idols that we bow down to. And behind all of those idols that we worship above God is the devil. As for the Lutheran assertion that the body of the Lord Jesus Christ is present in the bread and in his blood, uh, the, the, sorry, the, the Lutheran assertion that the body of Jesus is present in the bread and his blood is present in the wine, whilst there is no biblical warrant to subscribe to that view, there is nevertheless every reason to say that Jesus is present. He is present. I'm not saying that Jesus, his body is present in the bread. Neither am I saying that his blood is present in the wine. But what I would put to you is Jesus is present at the Lord's Supper. For example, in verse 17 here, Paul said that the Christians are one body, one loaf. Just as the various members or parts of a physical body have their functions, the feet for walking, the eyes for seeing, Christians are all members of one spiritual body. True? Christians in here? We're all members of one spiritual body, one bread, according to this. We are all part of the body of Christ. We looked at that uh, only a few days ago on Wednesday at the Bible study. All members of one spiritual body, the one true church of born-again believers, 
in which we all have our God-given functions. And a body is only alive if it has a head, and the head of that spiritual body is the Lord Jesus Christ. So spiritually, we are all part of one body with Jesus as our head. All of that should convey to you something of the unity and the fellowship that the members of the church have with one another and with Christ. The unity is, or at least it ought to be, very real that Christians have with one another and with their head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I do hope you realise here, I'm I'm not talking about us being members of a physical body or a physical loaf of bread. But look at the verses for yourself here. Verse 17. For we being many are one bread and one body. Well, we know that we're not in a loaf of bread or in one physical body. This is spiritual language. We are one body. There's much more teaching on that elsewhere in the Bible. And Jesus is our head. With all that in mind, we most certainly ought to be able to testify to there being a very real presence, indeed a heightened presence of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ in the midst of his redeemed when they come together to partake of the bread and the wine. It stands to reason when you hang on to the thought that as many members in one body, one bread, our fellowship is with one another and with Christ. Also in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 17, a verse that I quote fairly regularly, the Apostle Paul spoke about Jesus dwelling in hearts by faith. And in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 20, Jesus said, and I, I, lots of people would quote this one, Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. We all know that verse, don't we? Therefore, it is perfectly reasonable to say that when the church comes together as members of the body of Christ and they partake of the elements, that he is very much present. That's not fanciful language. I can remember when I first started going to church in my 30s and like some of the unsaved people do in this church, I would just sit quietly watching and listening when the communion service took place, but I had no part in it. However, when by the grace of God I believed and I professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I entered into that time of fellowship each month with other believers and with my Saviour Jesus Christ. And I can say that ever since then, and this is my testimony, I have found the Lord's Supper to be the most precious activity in the church. I would have to be so ill not to attend a communion service. I think there is nothing quite like it in the church. It is that one service that is just for the body, the bread of the Lord Jesus Christ, members of that body and him. 
What can be better than that? It's special. It was special when at last I was allowed to take part in that first communion service and it's been special ever since. When you consider that the Lord Jesus Christ has graciously given the communion service to believers and that's how you need to understand it. Don't just think of it as a commandment of Jesus. It's a grace. It's a grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The communion service, the Lord's Supper. And because it's a grace, a gift from God, it's got to be special, isn't it? You wouldn't expect Jesus to give a load of rubbish. It's wonderful. He has given to us the communion service to remember his death until he returns and to have fellowship with one another and with him. I would like to finish by encouraging all of you who belong to Jesus to avail of that grace each week and to spend the six days leading up to it preparing yourselves and looking forward to it. In Jesus' name, Amen.